Well, this morning we're gonna change gears a little bit here. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. How do you know if you are physically healthy? How do you know this? What marks healthiness? How do you gauge healthiness? There needs to be some sort of standard, right? To, 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 to find out, am I healthy or am I not healthy? And the medical field has gone to great lengths to identify for us what are the markers for physical healthiness. Isn't this, aren't you comforted by this? You know, when you go to the hospital and have an issue, they know, they have standards, they have a, a test to find out. I mean, these are comforting things to us so we know if we're healthy or not. But how does that relate and how does that then uh, translate into spiritual healthiness? Where do we go to find a standard uh, to measure if we are a healthy Christian? Have you ever considered that question? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Am I, maybe you've asked it in a physical sense, am I healthy physically, but spiritually, am I a healthy Christian? Have you ever asked that question of yourself? Uh, you might be here this morning, you've worked really hard on the physical side, but maybe on the spiritual side, you, you haven't paid much attention to that. Well, this morning, we're launching into a five-week series that will span the rest of our summer and the one week into September. We're gonna look at the marks of a healthy Christian. And we'll come back to this at some point, maybe later next year, and look at these again, because there's more to it than what we can spend five weeks on. But we're gonna look at what, what, what marks a healthy Christian, what identifies, what things that you look for in your own life to say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going towards being healthy as a Christian. You're gonna hear about worship next week and, and what that means for the Christian life and forgiveness the week after and crucifying the flesh and walking the spirit out of Galatians. This morning, we're gonna look at the pattern we see in scripture of a healthy Christian as one who humbly serves. And I think it fits well, actually. After a week of service and, and Mexico, hearing about that and VBS, this, this ties in well. We've seen it identified and, and shown to us by people in the church and I think we could grow more in this area in our lives individually and the life of the church corporately. So we're gonna look at Mark chapter 10. We're gonna look at verses 32 through 45 with the remaining minutes that we have this morning. And I'm, I promise you, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna scoot quickly, okay? So you gotta pay attention because our time is fleeting this morning and we have communion afterwards. So I'm gonna move quickly, but we're gonna look at what a healthy Christian is and one who humbly serves. So Mark chapter 10, look at verse 32 and following. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, We're able Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. 
And Jesus called them to him and said to him, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of God, son, excuse me, Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this morning, and my heart is already full from all the things that we've been able to experience. We thank you for your provision and protection for the team in Mexico and for just far exceeding our plans for VBS. God, you amaze us. And now, God, as we look into your word and we look at the topic of service, of serving, I pray that we will understand from the text, that we'll understand the desire to be great, as we'll see in this text, and the definition of what greatness is, as exemplified by the great one, Jesus Christ. Give us understanding, stir our hearts and our minds this morning. I pray that we will leave changed this morning because of your word, because of the preaching of your word. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I wanna cover three things in this text, the desire to be great, the definition of greatness, and the great one. The desire to be great. So I know you have your Bibles already in Mark 10, but I want you to flip back one chapter to Mark chapter nine, because I wanna briefly look at some verses that tie in here in, in the timing of what Jesus is saying to the disciples. Mark nine, starting in verse two. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured or changed before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Meaning, you think your clothes are white here. He's saying, the bleach that I have is much stronger than the bleach that you have. In the presence of Jesus Christ, they were clean in this regard. In verse four, and there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that, that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did, not, they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written. In this passage, as we set up for Mark 10, Jesus is preparing his disciples for something more. He, he, he knows what's gonna happen, and he wants to prepare these men for what, what's about to happen. It's gonna be traumatic for them, and he's starting now to lay that foundation. He knows their hearts, and he wants to point them in the right direction. Now look down in this chapter to verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask. And they came to Capernaum and when he was 
in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus is announcing again what's going to happen. The Son of Man, Jesus himself, he's referring to himself, he's, he's going to die. And he, he, he will rise a third day. And what are they discussing on the way? They're talking about who the greatest is. And they're not talking about basketball players like, no, Michael Jordan is the greatest or no, Kobe Bryant. No, they're not talking about that. They're talking about themselves. Who's the greatest here? That's what their discussion is surrounded by. And so when Jesus asked the question, and did Jesus really need to ask? Did, did, was he confused in what they were talking about? No, he knew. And their response is silence. Ashamed in the moment. And Jesus, what does he do in this moment? He takes time to teach them again on what greatness is. So that's Mark 9. But as we come to Mark chapter 10 that I read earlier, we see that this same issue is still present. Jesus' teaching on Mark chapter 9 obviously didn't resolve this issue of greatness. It didn't sink in with his disciples because they're still dealing with it in Mark chapter 10. It still didn't resolve the issue of selfish ambition and self-centeredness. So James and John in Mark 10, if you're there, they're in full agreement of their greatness, okay? And they approach the Savior with a special request. And I want you to know, you can write this in the side of your margin, they do this without the other disciples, specifically Peter. Peter is not there. And why is this significant? Well, this is the first time in Mark's gospel that James and John approach Jesus without Peter. And take a wild guess, but who's the main source for Mark's gospel? Who does he rely on to write his gospel? Peter. So Peter remembered this happening. He was left out. He was not part of that special meeting that these two brothers had with Jesus. And he obviously informs Mark as he's writing his gospel of, I remember what happened. Well, James and John approach the Savior and they think pretty highly of themselves. They think that Jesus should share the same assessment that they have of themselves and their greatness. They lack no confidence, or excuse me, they lack uh, how would I want to word that here? My mind's going to They have confidence, complete confidence. Sorry, you had to see that there. That brain wasn't engaged there. Complete confidence in what, where they're at. They, they're, there's no shyness with James and John. They boldly say to him in verse 35, they say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. A complete boldness. And, what, and what's the request in verse 37? Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus, we want to sit one at your right, one at your left. We'll let you decide who sits where, okay? You can decide that. But just we want to be right there, right there to serve in this kingdom. Jesus' answer, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And their answer without any hesitation is, yep, we're able. Jesus referring to the suffering that they'll go through. That same cup that Jesus will partake of when he's on the cross. 
J.C. Ryle writes, there are few true Christians who do not resemble James and John when they first begin the service for Christ. We're apt to expect far more present enjoyment from our religion than the gospel warrants us to expect. We are apt to forget the cross, forget the tribulation, and to think only of the crown. They're eager to have power. They want position. And they believe that Jesus was on his way to set up his kingdom militarily and politically. James and John then says, I want a position in this kingdom. Now, before you think I'm just picking on James and John, let's look at the rest of the 10 and their response in verse 41. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. They are indignant. They are upset. Are they upset because uh, they cannot believe that James and John would ask such a thing of Jesus? Are, are they upset because these two don't understand that Jesus' ministry is to come and to, and to save the people? Or is that why they're upset? No. They're upset because they beat him to the punch. They were there first and asked before them. Man, they missed out, they think. And now they're mad that James and John beat him. And it gives another opportunity for us to see the anger which reveals their hearts, their pride-drenched hearts. This morning, I am not concerned with James and John. I'm not concerned with the 10. My concern as I studied the scripture this week is for myself. Are you concerned with yourself? Are you concerned with yourself in the midst of this? Or are you listening to this sermon for someone else? You know what I mean by that, right? Be honest. I mean, you, you sit down, you've heard the introduction, you've, you've heard me read the verses, you're looking at your Bible, and you're thinking, oh, I know who needs to hear this sermon. I'm gonna take good notes so I can hand it off to this person. They need to hear this. In fact, I'm gonna go get a CD, which all can be good reasons, right? I mean, the, the reason might be good, but don't, in the midst of it, forget yourself. Don't, don't spend these moments here thinking of other people. Think of yourself. Your concern should be about you. Don't, don't waste these moments this morning listening to the sermon for someone else. Listen for yourself. Uh, my heart was troubled this week in the midst of this because I'm looking at myself in this. I'm concerned for myself because I see myself in this photograph. I'm reminded how often I, I approach the Savior with a similar attitude of James and John, and, and I say with a similar request to God, Lord, I want you to do for me whatever I ask. And how different that is than thy will be done. And I begin to wonder how many times Jesus answers my prayers and says, Jeff, you don't know what you're asking for. You don't know what you're asking for. You know, I'm thankful for unanswered prayers. I'm thankful that God doesn't answer all of those prayers. Those prayers made by selfish ambition, motivated by selfishness, ultimately for my and only good. I'm thankful that God doesn't answer those prayers. I'm thankful that God is sovereign and not sentimental. 
These men wanted Jesus to be a means of accomplishing their desires. And they appear before us this morning as a sobering reminder that the same tendency still lurks in my heart and my soul and yours also. To use God as a means for self-exaltation instead of to serve God ultimately for the glory of God and not for ourselves. And so we see in the disciples the desire to be great. Next, I want to see the definition of greatness because Jesus lays it out for us. The definition of greatness. Look at verse 42. When Jesus called to them and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. In the response to another blatant display of selfish ambition, Jesus again gives a reply to the disciples. And, and folks, I want you to notice it's full of grace and love. And in essence, he creates for them a teaching moment to direct our hearts and minds to what greatness really is. You need to see this. You need to mark it down or, or acknowledge it some ways because what you see in these three verses is the patience of God. It's the patience of God. Parents, I, I mean, this was, was brought out to me in the midst of frustrating moments with my kids. I want to be patient like Jesus is with these disciples. This is a learning moment for us. This is the patience of God. You're seeing the kindness and love of the Savior towards these men because frankly, these disciples are stuck on stupid. They're just living in it. Their mind is full of the arrogance and selfishness, and Jesus is calling them together. And he's going to define for them. He's going to, again, share with them what they need to know and understand and how they need to live. And Jesus is taking the world's definition of greatness, and he's redefining it. And he's so merciful to him. He's teaching us. He says in verse 43, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So in this, Jesus is not forbidding ambition. He's, he's, he's not saying don't be ambitious. No, he, he captures it. He purifies it. He redefines it and redirects it. He says, whoever would be great among you. He doesn't say don't be great. He says, to be great, do this. You must be a servant. Do you want to be great, James, John, and the 10? Then you must be a servant to the group. And when you read must, you need to pay attention in Scripture. You must be born again. Worship must be in sincerity and truth. And whoever is great among you must, must be your servant. He says, if you want to be great, you start at the bottom. You serve others. William Lane, in his commentary of Mark, writes, the reversal of all human ideas of greatness and rank was achieved when Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. This is an incredible reversal happening right before our eyes. It's historic. It's monumental what Jesus is doing here. It's a reversal of all the way the humans think things should go. I mean, think about this. Is this taught in schools I mean, be honest, is it taught in schools? Is it taught on the playing field in sports? I mean, a coach would get fired if he taught this way. Is it taught in politics? 
Not even close. Can you imagine a politician getting up saying, I, I'm here just to serve others? They may say that, but it's not taught. It's not believed. Jesus is saying, you want to be great? Do you want to be great? Then serve others. You know, our world scoffs at this and mocks it. It says it's crazy. The world says, you, you can't just constantly put others in front of you. If you do that, you won't get what you need. And if we do that as Christians, you know what we're saying in essence? I don't believe in the sovereignty of God. This is a reversal that Jesus is doing. He's, he's flipping the world upside down. You know, the world defines greatness this way, okay? The world says to be great, you need to be self-sufficient. You need to be driven by selfish ambition for the goal of self-exaltation. Did you catch my time? Self was mentioned there. Self-sufficient individuals driven by selfish ambition for the goal of self-exaltation. That's how the world defines greatness. And this is in conflict from what the Bible says. This is not what Jesus says here. I propose this morning from the scripture, we should define greatness from the scriptures this way. Serving others for the glory of God. Serving others for the glory of God. We don't do it for ourselves. We don't think about ourselves the whole time we're doing it. We don't demand things when we serve. We do it for God. We serve at the pleasure of the king. God, this is what it means to be great in the eyes of God. Serving others for the glory of God. This is what it means to be great. And this has to be distinctive in our lives individually, in our families, in our life as a church corporately. This has to be distinctive. Serving others for the glory of God. We don't serve here on Sunday because we have to. We don't give up vacation and go to Mexico to serve on a missions trip because we somehow earn something. We don't demand certain things to serve, like I'll do this in church only if this happens. That's not what serving means. That's not what Jesus lays out here. That's not how we respond as Christians. You serve for the glory of God. And guess what? If you serve, what are you called? One that serve is called what? A servant. Do you know another word for servant is in this text? Slave. Oh, now I'm, now I'm going in the areas where we don't go, right? Non-PC, right? We don't say that, right? You know, Jesus says that a whole lot in the scriptures. Slaves, verse 44, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Literally, doulos, the Greek word, bond servant. You willfully choose to place yourself under God, to serve him. It's a servant without any wages. It's a servant that's not expecting anything in return. It's what Jesus says that we should be. We willfully and joyfully submit ourselves to him. We serve that way. That is what a Christian is. That is what a healthy Christian is. One who serves others for the glory of God. But a little tangent here, because if you study this passage, you see a reference to Matthew's gospel. If you read further, Matthew talks about this story. But in Matthew's gospel, it's a little different. 
A little different than Mark's gospel. Because in Matthew's gospel, they give more understanding of what happened here. And in Matthew's gospel, guess who comes with James and John? Their mama. Their mom is the one, actually. Mom is the one who comes. Mom is the one who's most vocal. Mom is demonstrative. She kneels before Jesus, and she makes the request for James and John. She wants her boys to have success. And she comes before Jesus. She's out looking for a job for her boys. She's the mom that shows up at the interview. Have you considered my boy? And in the midst of all this, you have to take note of this parents that are sitting here. Grandparents. James and John's mother is example for us as mothers and fathers. And make no mistake, the mother of James and John was ambitious for her boys. She wants the good life for her boys. What are your ambitions for your kids? You know I was going to get there, right, parents? What are your ambitions for your kids? Is it college? Post-grad? Is it a certain job? Is it marriage? Is it kids? Is it houses? Is it a vacation home? Is it, what is it? It's probably whatever came into your mind just now. Every parent has ambitions for their kids. You can't escape that. Every parent has ambitions for their kids, but not every parent has ambitions that are biblical. Are your ambitions for your kids biblical? Meaning you can find the definition in the Bible. Do you have any ambitions for your kids that are more important than servanthood? Jesus defines for us what greatness is. He lays it out. And he starts at serving. If you have ambitions that are not lined up with Jesus' teaching, then you're off base. You're off track. I mean, you need to think about this. Do you have ambitions for your kids that are more important than servanthood? If you're confused on what your kids should do when they get older, go to Mark 10, because he lays out the plan for you at the beginning. Everything else will fall into place when your kids learn how to serve, to serve others for the glory of God. That's what it means to be great in the eyes of God. Do you see it? Like, I need an acknowledgement, actually. Do you actually see it in the text? It's there. It's challenging as a parent, isn't it not? I mean, the question is, if we see it, the next natural question for me is, do you believe it? Meaning, are you going to be obedient to it? This is for everyone. And I know I'm picking on parents and grandparents, but even non-parents, do you realize that you're teaching something with your life? You know, as a parent, I'm made abundantly clear every day that my kids pick up something from me. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not. But I am an example to my kids. And you may think, well, my kids don't live in the home. Guess what? You're still an example. They observe what you're doing. They observe how you spend your money, how you spend your time, how you live. Your kids that are grown, see it. 
And guess what? You may think they're not patterning your life. Yeah, they are. They're looking at you. They're observing. And if you don't have kids, look, people are looking at you. Maybe weird, I don't know. But they're observing. They, they see. If you're, you're here and you say, I don't have any kids, I'm off the hook. No, you, you don't because my kids are here. And so my kids are observing you. Other kids are observing you. How are we living? Are we living in a way that serving is up here, not down here? And, and I need to say this just briefly. You know, no one came to me and said anything like, hey, we have this needs. Can you make this part of the sermon? They didn't do this. But I know that for us, there's been a number of issues where we need more people to step up and serve. One of them is the nursery. And you may say, well, I already did my time. I had kids, changed a lot of diapers, don't really want to do it again. Yet, no, I don't see a verse in the Bible that says you can just do your time and you're done. We all have an opportunity to serve. You say, I don't want to change diapers. Fine, I'll come change my kid's diaper. I guarantee, well, maybe not mid-sermon, but afterwards. Parents can do that. But to go sit in the nursery one time a quarter so that parents can come in here and worship and, and, and we all share and serve in that way, that's a good way for us to step up and serve. You know, we, my wife, we were talking about how seamless, you know, we were amazed actually how well VBS went. She said we barely had to make mention of it. So that's a praise about our church that we barely had to make mention of the need for people to serve and then we were surrounded by 50 plus people. But there's still areas where we can grow, we can step up and look, how can we serve as a church? How can we serve one another? And it's not just in, a, in the church function or church things here, it's in, the, in your own community or church people outside of services. What are you displaying for others? You know, are you displaying yourself as a servant? Are you showing your kids and your neighbors and your fellow church members what a healthy Christian is because you said, I want to serve? You're finding ways to serve with your kids so they see this displayed. We need to answer these questions. We need to, to look at this in ourselves. That's why I'm saying the concerns only should be about ourselves in this point. It's vital for us to be honest about this and to look in the scriptures and then be obedient to what God's word says. Why should we serve? We serve others for the glory of God. That's why. So we've seen a desire to be great, the definition of greatness, and last, the great one. This is not about Wayne Gretzky or Michael Jordan. Do you guys know who Wayne Gretzky is? Anyone? Oh, you guys don't have hockey out here, so I wonder. He was called the great one. No, he was not the great one. Neither is Michael Jordan. Now, the great one is Jesus. And he's displayed here in verse 45 why he's great. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man doesn't need a sign of messianic dignity and authority. This is significant in the context of these verses. It's communicating to us that even though the one who has all authority, he humiliated himself. He came down, he humbled himself and left heaven to be with us, sinful creatures. And he didn't come to be served like a king. He was king and he deserved it. No, he came and he humbled himself. And he looked to serve others who didn't deserve it. True greatness is only attained by emulating and and doing what the Savior did. He is our example. And it's made possible only by the Savior's sacrifice. 
Donald English writes in his commentary, that at the source of all Christian service in the world is a crucified and risen Lord who died to liberate us into such a service. And Jesus Christ in this passage describes his death as a ransom. Maybe we're not familiar with that image in our culture, but in that culture would have been very familiar. A ransom represented the payment of a price required for deliverance from various forms of bondage or captivity or condemnation that were common in those days. And when he's saying this, we're all in bondage in the slave market of sin until Jesus frees us. John Stott writes of this emphasis of the ransom image. He says it's in our, our sorry state. Indeed, our captivity to sin which made the act of divine rescue necessary. This idea of, of a ransom for us reveals our horrible situation. It reveals where we live, where we're at. It reveals our sinful state. It reveals our miserable bondage to sin. And folks, it's graphically displayed for us in the disciples' life from verse 31 to 41. We have an illustration for our sorry state in their lives because of the bondage of sin. It's right in this passage. Did you catch it? The disciples are captive to selfish ambition for the purpose of their self-exaltation. They're so captive that they don't even get it when he announces that he's going to die and he's gonna die for their, for their lives. Instead, an argument erupts over who's the greatest. That's how captive they are. They're in bondage to sin. They can't even be sensitive for a moment. They can't even check out of their own life to see what God is, what Jesus is gonna do. He's saying, I'm going to die. And they miss it. Too busy discussing which one of them is the greatest. And why are they this way? Because they're held captive by their sin. A ransom must be paid. There is a price that must be paid for freedom. And what is the price? The price is the life of God's sinless son's atoning death that must be paid to God the Father who is the offended party for the purpose of setting us free from the effects and the power of sin. God accomplishes what is humanly impossible by sending and sacrificing his son for ambitious disciples and for ambitious souls like you and me. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, you're still captive. You're still in bondage to sin. And you can only be freed by Jesus Christ. And the hope is, is that he's saying to you, I have come, I have paid the ransom. Do you believe? Do you trust in him? Believe in him. I pray that today is the day of salvation for you. If you're a Christian here this morning, I want you to consider your life for just a moment. Where would you be today if he hadn't ransomed you? Think about that. Where would you be if he hadn't ransomed you? If he hadn't liberated and freed you. You would be that self-sufficient individual seeking to cultivate self-confidence for the purpose of self-exaltation. But if you're a believer, 
you've been changed. You've, if you've been genuinely converted, you've been forgiven, and God's word says you've been transformed by him. And so, yes, there's temptations and there's tendency to sin still, but a fundamental and radical change has happened so that you have now the desire to serve others that you never had before. And you may not do it perfectly. We're not, we're not gonna be perfect, but the desire is there to, to serve others instead of yourself and not for your glory, but for his alone. All because of Jesus, all because of the ransom paid in our behalf. We have this, this call in our lives to lay it down, to give it back because he paid for it. And he's asking for us to serve him. That is what a healthy Christian is. It's a powerful death of Jesus Christ. The cross ransom, the cross liberates, and the cross transforms. So I pray that you'll make it your aim, your, your lifelong habit, when you see someone serving, to be reminded again of the sacrifice of the Savior. Because a part of his, from his sacrifice, there is no serving. It's only through Jesus Christ and what he's done for us and that we can then, because of this, be truly great in the eyes of God. Serving is made possible only by the Savior's sacrifice. And so I pray that we're, as a church, we'll continue to grow in this, that we'll understand this, that when we see it in the lives of others in service, we will thank them again and remember Jesus Christ and his service for us. And that we as, as believers and Edgewood Milton, all the surrounding areas, will serve others for the glory of God. That is what a healthy Christian is. And that's what I want for our church, I want for my own life, I want for my own kids, healthy Christians. At this time, we're going to take the communion. So as the men come forward, this is the time of service where we remember Jesus' sacrifice for us. So men come forward. And this ties in well, again, to this passage. This is our chance to remember Christ. Remember what he's done for us. He, he paid that ransom for us. And so in this communion service, this is our opportunity to remember this. And so if there's any unconfessed sin in your life, take this opportunity when the bread is passed to confess your sins to him. He is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness.